So welcome everyone. First things first, just appreciate that we all got here tonight. That's really good. The biggest obstacle in life is that there are a lot of interesting things to do, let alone all the not so good, not so interesting things to do. A lot of things pulling us in different directions. So to have enough wherewithal to be interested in working with the mind or the heart in a more direct way and to be able to get ourselves here, it's, it's really a good fortune. I mean, it, it partly depends on our own interest, but it also depends on just good fortune, like being healthy enough to be here, being fortunate enough to know about a place to go to, to practice. And we can, in, in Buddhism, there's um, something that gets translated like wholesome fear. So not to spook us out or anything, but it's appropriate to be uh, appropriately concerned or fearful of sliding into a life of distraction or sliding into a life of superficiality or sliding into a life of just sort of having an emotional reaction and then reacting to our emotional reaction with another reaction, and on and on and on like that. And how just appreciating how easy it, it is to be caught up by life, the events in our lives, reactive, and then our reaction itself becomes the next event in life, a never-ending sort of drama. So part of this practice that we've been working with now for three weeks is understanding that there's a different approach. We don't have to relate to the present moment in a reactive, self-centered, dramatic, attached, identified way. And if nothing else, we can recognize that relating to the present moment, like the pain in the body, a memory in the mind, some interaction you're having. If nothing else, we can relate, we can recognize that the way that we're relating isn't working. You know, like if we are reactive, if we are practicing some kind of denial or distraction or superficiality, we can notice, well, this isn't working. You know, it isn't actually clarifying what's going on. It isn't leading to better decisions or better choices. It isn't releasing the tension in the mind and body. And that's a big step, because actually we don't look for another way of relating until we begin to see that our habitual way of relating isn't working. It just leads to more tension or more dullness or more heaviness in our heart and the mind and the body. The Buddha had a very simple teaching he gave in different ways, but one way I particularly like, he said, nothing whatsoever should be clung to as I, me, or mine. And then he went on. Having heard that, you've heard all the teachings. Having practiced that, you're practicing all the teachings. Having realized that directly, you've realized, you've had insight into everything you need to have insight into. Nothing whatsoever should be clung to as I, me, or mine. That's an easy teaching to remember. Nothing whatsoever should be clung to as I, me, or mine. 
So when we do our sitting practice at home here at the center, you know, we're finding a stable, comfortable posture. Remember the comfortable part, you know, stable and comfortable, upright, so that the posture is reflecting this interest in being right in the middle of things. Feel free to find a seat. Don't wait. It's okay. So the posture is reflecting our intention to be right in the middle and to be relaxed, to be stable. You know, and then what we're doing, and we're practicing nothing whatsoever should be clung to. So how do we have a life, have a lived experience, and not cling? So then we really understand what meditation practice is about. Because it's like a really simple way, simple place to practice not clinging. I mean, it'd be one thing to be at work, at a job interview, you know, meeting somebody for the first time and practice not clinging, not getting identified or attached to the flow of experience. But it's relatively, it's not easy, but it's relatively easy to do it in a quiet room where we don't have to be social and we're just sitting in a comfortable, upright way, feeling the body, feeling the breath, noticing mental content moving in the mind. It's relatively easy to let the flow of mind-body experience just be what it is, not adding anything to it, not taking anything away from it. And basically, realizing the experience of non-clinging. So first we hear it, you know, we get the instructions, and then, you know, when we hear it, even on that level, you know, you hear the teachings, you read a book, you hear a class at Common Ground, or you take the intro class at Common Ground, you get presented with these teachings, and some people, not everybody, but some people go, that makes a lot of sense. Nothing whatsoever should be clung to as I, me, or mine. Or another version of that same teaching, the Buddha said, the supreme liberation has been discovered by the Tathagata. That's the, the word he used to refer to himself. Sometimes it's tra translated as one thus gone, <laughs> Tathagata. Tathata means like in Zen you hear the term suchness or thusness, like the way it is-ness, yeah? That's a related term. So he referred to himself as the one thus gone or the one that's just what it is, the person that's just what it is, or the mind that's just what it is, this mind, body, just what it is. That's how he referred to himself, not as Mark or not as the Buddha. So he said, the supreme liberation has been discovered, right? Namely, liberation through non-clinging. So it's both the path and the fruit of the path. So we sit down, comfortable, stable position. We have that bit of information, that little teaching. Nothing whatsoever should be clung to. And, and we just sort of bring it up. That's what we do at the beginning of a sit, is we remember like the right attitude. Because if we just come at our meditation practice like we come at everything else, it's just going to become another self-centered project. I'm going to become great. I'm going to become a great meditator. Or if we tend to be a victim, we're, we're thinking of reasons why we're not going to be good at it. You know, I'm never good at things. I'm probably not going to be good at meditation either. Or I'm not going to be good as the person next to me. She seems so still. You know, but or I'm going to be so much better than this person. You know, can't sit still or you know, look sleepy. So we usually just bring a normal attitude to everything we do. 
So the first thing we do is we have right attitude. So we bring up the information. We feel inspired. Oh, what a radical notion. Nothing whatsoever should be clung to. And then you remember the further information. Okay, now how do I operationalize that pointing out, that teaching? Oh, yeah. Mark, I remember Mark saying, practice being alert and relaxed with present moment experience. Because not clinging can't be something we do. You know, then it becomes another self-centered project. So not clinging is something that we, we, in a sense, we discover it. We get really close to the present moment by cultivating alertness. We cultivate being really interested in the natural, ordinary flow of mind-body experience. We cultivate that bright, wholehearted interest with ordinary things like the breath and sensation and sound. Even mental thought, even that can be seen like a river, like an ordinary flow. Just like the body sensations, this ongoing stream of sensation in the body, the ongoing stream of the movement of the breath, thought in the mind, emotion in the heart, all of this flow we practice being really alive, really awake to, and we practice being relaxed. This is how we practice not clinging and understanding what that means. Because the relaxation really shows us when we're clinging, right? Because we're not relaxed. On some level, subtle or gross, the mind-body is tight. It's defended, it's struggling, it's striving, and it stands out because we have this intention to relax, to release, to accept, to trust, right? That's that half of the practice, and it stands out. But this uh, seeing things as they are, this sort of not clinging, depends on being close. So it's not enough just to relax. We have to relax while being awake and intimate and undefended, not afraid of what's happening. So we need both of those to actually realize the experience of non-clinging as a lived experience. You need both of those ingredients. You need to be really awake, really connected to the body-mind experience, and then to be relaxed. You know, it's like we could all say, you know, last night about 3 o'clock in deep sleep, I wasn't clinging to a thing. But it has no effect on us because it wasn't a conscious event. To be really in the middle of life and not clinging, that's the realization. We begin in meditation practice where it's relatively easy, and then we take it into the world. You know, even in the past, you know, the sort of stereotypic monk or nun practicing alone in the forest, just going into town every day to get the meal and then hiding out in some secluded place and realizing non-clinging, you know, re realizing a way of being with the mind-body experience without getting attached or identified or clinging. They're not done. Then eventually people start to wonder, boy, the person seems really serene. They seem to glow, you know. Maybe I'll ask her or him to be my teacher, you know, and then people gather around and eventually there's a monastery and they make the person the abbot. And that's where they have to realize non-clinging. It's one thing to do it in a nice meditation when nobody's bothering you. And it's another thing to be a parent or to be an employee or to be a concerned citizen or to fall in love and to practice not clinging, to get old, to get sick and to practice not clinging.
So there's this powerful dance we have between our sitting practice, where it's relatively easy to, to cultivate that interest, that vivid, alert, wakeful presence with the breath, with whatever's predominant, and then to relax with it, to trust it, to allow it to be. And then it's another thing in 15 minutes or 30 minutes to go out into the world and to get in traffic, to have a conversation with the person you're living with, to clean up after your dog's mess, you know, or all the ordinary things that push our buttons in life. And to bring that same wisdom of non-clinging, the quality of love that is non-clinging. Non-clinging is the beautiful coming together of love and wisdom. You know, the seeing that they're not really different. That's what non-clinging is. Participating or being in the world with a loving, wise heart as expressed as non-clinging, non-attachment, non-identification. It's really the giving ourselves fully to the moment. Like, how can we respond generously in every moment? That doesn't mean just generously to other people, also generously to ourselves. So it's generously without any boundaries, like preferring other people more than ourselves or preferring ourselves more than other people. It's like giving our life away moment by moment. That's where real joy, real happiness comes from. That's just the expression or another way of talking about non-clinging, non-identification, non-attachment. This arises due to insight. Insight happens when the mind is really alert and really uh, relaxed. Meditation practice is developing the muscles of being really alert and really relaxed. So that's an overview of what where we've been thus far. You know, we work, we begin often in terms of instruction, just working with something really concrete like the breath in the body, literally feeling the actual sensations of the belly expanding and contracting. Or some people prefer to feel the breath at the nostrils, so you're feeling the actual touching as the breath goes in and out. But remember, we're really practicing not clinging, and we're using the specific event or experience of the touching, the movement, hearing, generally the sensations in the body or the predominant sensations in the body. We're using that specific experience as an anchor, as a sort of focus for the attention, so we can practice non-clinging in a simple way. So can the mind be alert, interested in the breath, and relax, not cling, not control, not judge, not compare? Can we be vividly present, vividly interested, without any breaks or gaps in the attention, without any friction? The awareness of the breath, the presence with the breath, isn't creating any friction or tension in the mind. And then seamlessly, there we are with the breath, vividly present, completely relaxed, no friction, right? Then a painful memory arises. So now the painful memory is the predominant experience in the moment. The mind is naturally going to know that memory arising. He said that to me. Can we feel the pain of the emotion? Can we see the content of the thoughts, the memory, the images? Again, without any clinging. 
So it doesn't mean we don't feel the associated emotion, but the mind isn't clinging to it, isn't identifying, it isn't proliferating around it. It isn't thinking about the thought that just arose. The thought did arise, so there's a thought in the mind, but there's no kind of reverberation, more thoughts about that thought, more thoughts or images about that thought and image. Do you see? So a disturbing sound could happen, a disturbing thought, a beautiful thought, painful sensation, beautiful sensation, and it's just that. It's just a sensation, painful or otherwise. Just the thought, beautiful or otherwise. Things get really simple without clinging. It's the clinging, it's the kind of additional attachment that creates, puts into effect all these reverberations where our mind, heart, body gets really complicated and entangled. So I'll give us, I'll give us all instructions during the sit, but any questions about what I've said thus far? And then we'll stretch our legs out, and then we'll sit for about 30 minutes tonight. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's at the heart of the practice, so I'll say a little bit more about it. But by cultivating that alert and relaxed awareness with ordinary events like the breath, the sensation, clinging will really stand out as an activity in the present moment. So clinging or attaching or identifying or this sort of... Uh, deep, almost uh, always present activity, you know, struggling. It's, an, it's a present moment activity, and it's like an energetic contraction. And it, it always comes with the flavor of uneasiness or heaviness, but it's unpleasant. And the unpleasantness is directly related to that activity. That activity is something the mind is doing in the present moment. So the clinging is something the mind is doing that's not necessary, and it's a, and it, and it's a weight, it's a burden. It's, one teacher called it the squeeze on the heart. But what we really need to discover, we need to discover it not as a concept, oh yeah, that makes sense, you know, like what I just said, oh yeah, that makes sense. But we want to see it energetically or feel it energetically in the mind and body the activity of clinging. And we want to see how it's something the mind is doing that it doesn't have to do. Only then will letting go happen. The cause for letting go is seeing the unnecessary clinging. You know, If you don't see clinging, letting go doesn't happen. So to go beyond clinging, what do you have to do? You have to see clinging. When do you have to see it? You have to see it in the present moment. It's the only moment you can see clinging. Otherwise, you're just thinking of a concept of clinging. But if you actually see or feel or know the clinging, it will begin to dissipate. If you see it clearly, completely, it will completely fall away. If you kind of see it and kind of believe in it, it will kind of go away and kind of stay. You know? So it just depends on how clear the understanding is, how relaxed you are, how alert the mind is, how bright the mind is. Did you say Lori? Yeah, thanks, Lori. Yes. Say your name? Joel. Joel. I noticed you used to focus on the breath aspect of focusing on body sensations and feelings. 
Mm-hmm. No, I think uh, uh, if, if you've been uh, trained a particular way, I would stick with that unless you have reasons to change. The primary object doesn't matter as much as the attitude you bring to it. That's the real focus. So I usually offer three. I usually talk in terms of the breath, but I almost always say, or sensations, or sound. So using sound as an anchor, using predominant sensations in the body, whether you're doing a sweeping technique, or you're just letting the awareness go to what's predominant, or just feeling the uprightness if there's nothing predominant in the body, or using specifically the movement of the breath in the body. So it gives people three options. And then the fourth we'll talk about on week five, doing a formal loving kindness practice as a, as a fourth option. Now, there are many others besides those four. But you know, just to keep it simple, that's usually what I mentioned. So yeah, sensations is a great anchor for practice. But yeah. Well, first, there's two points. And then, actually, this is, will be a nice lead-in, because I'll give some of the instructions now, and then I won't have to give them during our silent time. So the nature, the habit of the mind is to think. Practice is not about stopping thinking. Practice is about being alert and relaxed with the way things are, and using a particular anchor to help just get a sense of what it means to be alert and relaxed. But when thoughts interrupt, if they're just sort of thoughts without much of a charge, then stay attending to your anchor, to the breath, to sensations, to sounds. Okay? But sometimes thoughts arise over and over again, and they come with a charge, an emotional charge, so that they're actually quite predominant. And it's, it creates stress to stay with the breath, if that's your anchor. So then you let the attention go to the thoughts, not the content of the thoughts, but thoughts as a present moment activity, thoughts that are arising and ceasing and arising and ceasing. So you're looking at thoughts as a present moment event or phenomenon. Oh, thinking is happening. And you can even use some of that noting or labeling technique. It can be quite useful, even if you're not using it all the time, sporadically, just to name what's going on. Oh, it's just thinking being known. So we're helping clarify, because our habit is to get identified with the thoughts, the content of the thoughts, right? Like, oh, I'm thinking this. Not that we'd even say that. It's just that's the experience. It's very personal. But we want to change that to a more objective, oh, thoughts are being known. Thinking is happening. And it's like this. It's just thinking. It's like this. And it kind of keeps the mind in this more spacious, clear, non-identified, non-clinging relationship to the thoughts. And then in that place, you can see that those thoughts come, and then they go. And if we're not feeding the, the, the stream of thinking with identification, with attachment, it tends to weaken or even fall away and not come back. And then we can come back to the breath or sensations or sounds, the anchor. So the falling asleep is a different thing. you know. It could be that you're not making enough effort to be in the present moment. And that tends to 
uh, you know, just being quiet, being still, but not making your mind, not cultivating brightness, generally people slide into unconsciousness because that's what our mind is in the habit of doing. When we're not asking the mind to do anything, it tends to go to sleep. You know, this would be a good time to go to sleep. So you have to ask your mind to do something. We're making the mind work. It's just a very particular kind of work. What is the work the mind is doing? It's, it's doing two things. And we're doing those two things wholeheartedly. We're wholeheartedly interested in the flow of mind-body experience. And using, relying a lot on our primary anchor, you know, primary meditation object like the breath, just so we know what to pay attention to. But basically, anything in the present moment is a fine object. So we're vividly, we're kind of like really taking it up to know what's happening. Know the next in-breath and then the next out-breath and to know whatever strong distractions arise. And we're wholeheartedly looking for tension in the mind and body and relaxing and releasing and trusting and allowing things to be. Not believing the habit to tighten up but instead to cultivate a new habit of trust, of release, of relaxation, of allowing. We're doing both of those things. It's hard work because it's not our habit. That hard work keeps the mind awake. If we stop doing those two things and we're just sitting in a quiet room without a lot of distractions and we're tired, we're going to go to sleep. Even if we're not tired, we're going to go kind of drowsy, kind of a trance-like state. The only thing that keeps us out of sleep in trance states is this wholesome work. So we have to kind of like bring that real wholeheartedness to the practice. Otherwise, we'll lose it. And a lot of people get confused about it because, you know, we've got a stereotypic idea that meditation is just like this nice vacation from life. You know, but that's like, that's a nap. That's not meditation. <laughs> that's like a sitting up nap. You might as well lie down. You know, it's going to be a lot more satisfying as a nap. And, and, and naps are really healthy. So it's like you might feel like you get a lot of benefit from that kind of meditation practice because it's healthy to take a nap, to, to sort of check out from our busy lives and to have some downtime. But it's not meditation practice. We won't really learn anything. We're just getting refreshed, which is really good, of course. So by all means, take naps and step out of life, you know. And I'll talk more about that for the last day. There's a lot of value in just resting. But there's a, a much more profound transformation that comes from this path of awakening. So we're not resting, we're waking up. Relaxation is a big part of waking up, but it's only half of it. The other half is that profound alertness, interest, vivid presence. And it's the combination of the relaxation with the vivid presence that really opens up life, our experience. Because our way of being in the world is completely dependent on being superficial, not really being there in our life. So when we cultivate this sort of vivid, wakeful presence and a deep sense of trust and release, it's like we're in a different universe, not the one we're used to living in. Because we're mostly checked out when we're living our life. So let's stretch our legs so we will be comfortable for about 30 minutes. You can stand if you want. But take a couple minutes. Feel free to stretch any way that feels appropriate. And then whenever you're ready, just settle back into your sitting posture. 
more stable your posture, the less muscles you have to use to maintain it. Once you start to feel some stability in the sitting posture, then you might want to take several slow and deep breaths in and out. Use the deep breathing as a beautiful ritual. So as you breathe in, you can use that long, slow in-breath in to practice feeling the body more deeply coming home to the experience of the body. And with each of the long, easy exhalations, practice letting go of any unnecessary tension, like in the brow, the shoulders, in the belly, wherever you're holding unnecessary tension. And without straining, see how much you can slow down and deepen the next two breaths. This is a simple, powerful way to shift gears from a life of rushing and reacting to being more at ease. This can be the last deep, easy exhalation when you get there, and then eventually let the breath continue on its own. We can practice receiving the sound of the bell. Remember, the basic attitude in meditation practice is to be open, clear, relaxed, free of clinging, free of struggling with experience. And even if you notice the mind is struggling or resisting, wanting, can the mind accept that reactivity, 
see it clearly and relax with it. So it's always possible to practice, even when the mind is reactive. So we usually begin by turning the attention to something simple, like the movement of the breath in the body, or feeling opening to sensation of sitting, sensations of the body, or using sounds. Work with a particular anchor and then stick with it as a good friend, cultivating a very deep relationship over the years of practice. So the mind can cultivate its skill in being clear or alert and relaxed with more continuity. And remember, if you're working with the breath or just generally, you can use the noting or labeling technique if it helps. So for example, with the breath, you can note in, out, or rising, falling with each in and out breath. And you can also note predominant distractions when they arise. So the mind understands it's just thinking, it's just pain, it's just this. So let's continue in silence for a while. being particularly interested in the continuity of mindful attention, how it begins to transform the mind.
it can be quite helpful to check the attitude from time to time. So in a sense, you're looking directly at the mind, the mood, the particular way the mind's relating to experience. Like, is it irritated? Is it bored? Is it excited? Is it striving? Is it full of doubt? And you can even name the particular way the mind is relating. Oh, doubt is like this, or judging is like this, irritations like this. So there are really two things we're noticing. We're noticing the particular object of meditation, whether we're looking at pain as a distraction or the sensations of the breath coming in or out. But we're also looking at or knowing the way the mind is relating, the particular mood or attitude. Not to judge it, just to see it for what it is. Again, again, and again. Remember how useful it is to work with the anchor, the breath or sensation, sound. To practice connecting, so being interested, alert, 
being relaxed and accepting of whatever is being known. And then to cultivate a continuity of mindful attention, so I'm not forgetting the in-breath all the way through to the end and then that little gap, and then to feel, to be aware of the out-breath from the very beginning to the very end. And to have this continuity of attention without getting tight, without striving, keeping the body and mind relaxed.
So again, just remembering, noticing how the attitude is. And then however the attitude, however the experience is, see if it's possible to relate without clinging. Simply to understand that this is how it is now. This mind-body experience is like this. Can this be okay? Being both awake or alert and relaxed, accepting, even with physical pain. It's possible to be both alert and relaxed, just trusting the pain to be what it is. It's just intense sensations being known. We're like this now. Can this be okay? And of course, if the sensations are overwhelming or there's a concern you're hurting the body, then in a quiet way, make an adjustment. Be sitting for another minute or two. If your eyes have been closed, you may may want to open your eyes for the last minute. Just this sense of being sensitive, seeing, <clears throat> hearing, aware of the body sensations, aware of thoughts. See if it's possible to more fully relax into the natural sensitivity of the mind and body. Not needing things to be other than what they are now. like to use that gesture that I mentioned last week, you can do a little Anjali, it's called, bringing the hands together. And just what we're doing is we're organizing the mind in the direction of being grateful. You can even be grateful that this sits over. That's nice, isn't it? Uh, Did it. I sat for 30 minutes. I'm just grateful that there is something like this practice, like this community to practice with. Just a kind of thanks in all directions. So feel free to stretch out your legs so you're as comfortable as you can be. This is the time where we do a little check-in. It's nice to hear what people have been learning, both tonight, but generally through the week, weeks, what's been difficult, what's felt really good in your practice, questions about the instructions you'd like to clarify. It really helps to normalize the 
practice by people sharing. So I encourage people not to be shy or not to feel like your experience is really personal. It's amazing how much alike it is to have a mind. It seems so personal, but actually the experience of having a mind is uh, kind of something we all share. It's very similar. <laughs> Mostly it's difficult. So thoughts? Yeah. When we cultivate that alertness and that relaxation, that will really help you answer the question. Because part of life is a natural movement. You can't be alive without movement. Even when we're sitting, there's the body's moving, sensations are moving, thoughts are moving. So life, by definition, is filled with movement. It's defined by movement, by change. So we're not trying to become some static you know, fixed entity that doesn't move, afraid to move, thinks movement's bad. There's nothing inherently wrong with checking the twin score. But what's interesting is to see in that moment that the activity of checking the twin score, is it like you suggested, born out of fear of not knowing, boredom with what's happening, kind of a, a subtle or not so subtle aversion, of what's happening in the moment, seeking something interesting because this isn't enough, this moment isn't enough. Maybe something's going on in the twins, with the twins, so let me check. So, because what we don't want to do in life is reinforce a neurotic hungriness, craving, right? That's that craving, clinging, the endlessness of desiring. So there's a difference between moving with life, doing what's next, being wholehearted, and being dependent on checking the twin score, being dependent on constantly moving and adjusting my body, being dependent on overthinking what's going to happen tomorrow 30, 40, 300 times more than I really need to plan, need to think through what's going to happen. That kind of activity, on the surface, there may be a little juice to it, but when we look at it more carefully, it feels really heavy. The dependency is heavy. So there's nothing wrong or heavy about checking the twin score. But being dependent on needing to know the twin score, that's suffering. That's a kind of stress. It's not the checking it. It's the mind being dependent on needing to know, being dependent on doing something other than just being in the moment. That's kind of a neurotic heaviness. And that we can let go of. And then when we check the twin score, it can be something much lighter and freer. And if the you know, electronic device is down, the heart doesn't hurt. You know? We're not sort of like finding some other way. It's like, well, it's OK. It would be fine to know it. It's fine not to know it. And just our relationship with life is really light and nimble in that way. Because there's no particular thing 
that the heart is dependent on for its happiness. It's actually taking refuge in a natural happiness or contentment that isn't about the external or the present moment conditions. So then our participation, our relationship to the present moment conditions is very light and joyful and has a lot to do with uh, this sort of freely giving and receiving, kind of a natural relationship, but not a neurotic neediness or fear, you know, which is mo mostly what drives us. Yeah. Um, Say your name. I'm Andrew. Andrew. Um, it's a lot easier for me to just pull the smoker and not great at doing this on my own by not great not great practice at it and do this one for sure. But uh, it's a lot easier for me to sit here and have a sit when I'm surrounded by 30 or 40 other people. Um, it's a lot harder when I do it on my own. And just the act of closing my eyes First of all, just I appreciate you sharing that, uh, your direct experience, and I'm sure a lot of people can relate to it. Because our mind, in a sense, has gotten addicted to activity and distraction and kind of keep doing the next thing and thinking about the things, we've learned to be, in a sense, disconnected from things as they are. So when we do come, we do take up a practice that brings us into the moment, we're basically feeling the reverberations of having lived disconnectedly. I know that's not a word. So we're living in a disconnected way, and there are consequences to that. So when we do, you know, like if we could, if I could take each of you right now and, and set you on a, you know, beautiful open field, you have a platform, and you're just alone, there's nothing there, you know, pretty much it's just a matter of when all of us would go crazy. Because we're not, even though we would have food, we'd have enough shelter, you know, that there wouldn't be anything to distract the mind except our memories and our thoughts about things, and that would get old pretty quick. You know, it would work for a while, but then it's like uh, it almost becomes oppressive. You know, and this is a form of torture. This is how they torture people. It's that so they isolate people in this way. Because our mind is sort of dependent on not being home, you know? It's like our attention is dependent on not knowing things as they are. So there is a sort of initial crash or bad taste, can be at least, to coming home. In fact, it's interesting how when people first start to practice, they usually have one of two experiences. One is, it's like, oh my God, I am so glad to settle in. And the other is, this is intense. This is strange. I don't like this. You know, Even though we might feel like it's the right thing, but it's very, it can be very unpleasant. The one guarantee is it's going to change. People who are finding it very pleasant to sort of settle in, it won't always be that way. 
and people are finding it really difficult, it won't always be that way. And so initially for someone like you who's feeling a lot of um, uh, unpleasantness, you're going to need to rely on confidence, whatever confidence you have. Like even the confidence that, you know, when I think about it, I mean, just on this intellectual level, when I think about it, sitting down, being relaxed, and being clear is not dangerous in any way, is not threatening in any way. So whatever's coming up, as real as it is, I know I'm not doing anything stupid or dangerous. I can really trust this. And in fact, isn't it interesting that this is so intense? You know, it kind of catches our interest. Like, wow, this is interesting that just relaxing in this relatively simple environment where there's not a lot of distractions and not a lot of expectations, and just being should be so difficult. That can really energize the alertness part of the practice, like to get really, like what actually makes this so difficult? What is actually scary? Can I open to that? Can I relax with it? Can I get interested? You know, is it a feeling, a sensation? Is it a thought? Is it a combination? Is it emotion? What's actually going on? What happens if I relax with it? What happens if I name it? Oh, anxiety's like this. Just anxiety. What happens if I actually welcome it in? What happens if I allow it to get as big as it needs to get? What happens if I allow it to kill me? You know, let me be the first person to die from this anxiety. Let's see if that actually will kill me. Because the instinct is, the kind of primitive instinct is, yeah, this feels like when the energy of anxiety builds, like a panic attack, which happens to some people in meditation practice. You know, to, to really explore, well, what, you know, what happens if this continues? What will happen? So we're just observing it. We're not feeding it, but we're not backing away from it either. And then, of course, if, you know, at some point we'll lose our nerve, lose our confidence, and then, you know, we'll open the eyes or we'll move or we'll, you know, walk out of the room or we'll just notice that we're at the grocery store and we don't know how we got there. You know, we just bolted like... Some of you have heard of Pema Chodron, one of the more famous Buddhist teachers in this country. She's a, an American, but she's uh, ordained in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. She's a nun. And in one of her books, she's got this great line, something like, never underestimate the inclination to bolt in practice. To bolt, B-O-L-T. You know, because that's, and it can be just a feeling of being with physical discomfort or physical restlessness or mental restlessness or even the oppression of being sleepy can be so unpleasant, you know, to be sitting and just being dull like a wet blanket. So there are a lot of challenging experiences that come. Well, just the grasping after calm and the, the inner joy that can come in practice, like really wanting it, being a wanting monster with it. There are all different kinds of ways to create intense, hellish experiences for ourselves. We'll see it all. If you practice for a while, you'll see every variation of hell. Self-imposed, self-created hell. But the key is we'll, be, we'll learn how to make space for it. How not to react to it. How to allow it to arise and cease on its own without me having to get on my high horse and running away from it or destroying it but to let these hell, hell realms come and go and come and go 
until we don't take them personally anymore. And the not taking them personally is what really revolutionizes or transforms the mind. But we have to see it intimately. We've got to be right there in the middle of this catastrophe we call our life in order for it to be transformed. Running away to some la-la land, some imagined bliss state, doesn't really do it. You might get temporary relief, but you just reinforce the neurotic idea that I've got to get somewhere to be happy. And that idea, you know, is where we become enslaved by that idea, that, that sort of attitude. That happiness is somewhere else. It's intoxicating. Yeah, and your name? Hi, my name is Mary. Hey, Mary. And I was just going to offer, I, I went out on the search for a non-disturbing timer. Mm-hmm. It wasn't lucky enough to find one, but I use a timer that sort of puts a frame around the time that I've committed for meditating at night. And, and, and it really helps me just sort of relax and let go because then I know the timer will sort of signal when the end is and I can commit myself to that amount of time and not worry about how much time has passed and where am I in my meditation. I can just sort of let go and then the timer just sort of gently brings me back to, well, not necessarily gently, but mm-hmm. I sit on it so it doesn't make <laughs> <laughs> It brings me back to, you know, this is sort of the end of what I've committed myself to doing, and, and, it, and it feels easier to me to, yeah. to let go for that period of time. Yeah, you mentioned a lot of really important things, Mary. I'm glad you brought these up. One is, the, the framework, like you're having a set time, and you get to decide. Like no one's imposing. I mean, I recommend 30 minutes, but you know, everyone's situation is different for all kinds of reasons. So you get to decide. You set an amount of time you're comfortable with. And I, I also really important what Mary said, not to sort of set it and then put it aside. And if you use a timer, yeah, you can wrap it in a towel so it's not an abrasive sound. Or if you just Google meditation timer. You can, or a lot of the apps, or if you have an iPhone. So there's a lot of ways you can get a nice chime that isn't abrasive that you can just set. There's many products out there. They're all free, you know. So just find one and uh, set it up. Or you can even get CDs. You can make your own CD, you know, where you, you know, ring a bell after 30 minutes of silence. You know, you just record silence for 30 minutes and then. So there are a lot of ways to do it, and I recommend it. So either with a kitchen timer wrapped in a blanket or a towel so it's not too loud or some other way. And then like Mary says, then you've got this framework. I've decided I'll be safe for 15 minutes. And then you really stick to it. It's important that you choose an amount of time you can really stick with no matter what. Arises, no matter what hell realm arises, you stick with it. Because you're reinforcing, you, like, you want to build on success. So start where you know you can do it, and then build on that. Let your confidence say, oh, I think I'll try seven minutes. You know, five-minute work, I'll try seven minutes. Take a really vast view of the practice. Like, I mean, whether you believe in past and future lives, just imagine you have as much time to cultivate this practice as you need. So if you're 
60 now. Don't think, oh, my God. I know people like this. They, they start to practice at 60 or 70 or 80, and they, they love it. And then they start to getting caught up and thinking, oh, I should have started this when I was 40 or 30 or 20. Or Yeah, it's probably true, but, but the key is it's great that we're doing it now. And it's just an idea that I'm going to die, and that's it. We don't know. I mean, that's the truth. We just don't know. So why not have the view that we don't know, and we may have as much time as we need to cultivate this path? And that's certainly, you know, in the Buddhist tradition, that's really the, the view. No, it's just a view. I don't have proof. If anybody does, please share it. <laughs> um, I want to mention a few things, but if there are any other comments from your practice, we maybe five more minutes before I want to pipe in with some stuff. Well, it's that, that question, can this be okay, is actually changing our relationship. You know, when we're being thrown about by the mind state or by what's going on, then just to have the wherewithal to ask the question, can this be okay, we've already transformed our relationship. So now, whatever this is, now it's something that's being known. A moment ago, I was lost in it. I was... You know, it was me. It was my life. Now it's something that's being known in the present moment. So the question isn't necessarily, it's like rhetorical. It just changes your attitude. Can this be okay? That question is, a, it comes out of compassion, you know? So feel it that way, like, don't, don't expect an answer. Can this be okay? It's the question. It's a compassionate, loving question. Can this be okay? I don't know. Can this be okay? So it's an active exploration. Can this pain, can these intoxicating thoughts, can this emotion be okay? So we're right there. This is the edge. We're right there. You know, the mind screams no. Well, can that be okay? We just come right back with the question. Can the, the complete rejection saying no, can that be okay? You know? So. You can always ask that question, can this be okay? And it's just relating to the moment with wisdom and compassion. Like, like just understanding, this is what it's like when the mind is completely overwhelmed. Can this be okay? This is what it's like not to have any more hope. Can this be okay? This is what it's like to be on top of the world. Can this be okay? You know? So... It doesn't matter whether it's the, the most difficult moment of your life or the most beautiful moment of, of your life. The question is always the same. Can this be okay? In the sense of, can the mind, heart, body bring this full, alert presence, relaxed, allowing, accepting presence to things as they actually are? Is it safe to show up? Is it more safe to show up than to distract, to, to deny, to control. You know, so it's an open question. What is actually skillful here? Opening, allowing, not clinging, or fighting, reacting, pushing, pulling. 
what actually works. And we'll learn either way. If we practice allowing things to be, we'll see how that is. If we practice controlling, fixing, denying, distracting, we'll see how that is. We'll see if it works. So you can't lose. You know, like if we do the wrong thing and struggle and cling, if we're somewhat mindful, we will notice whether that's leading to happiness or not, or just making things worse. So this is the key. This is why mindfulness is so transforming. It doesn't matter what we do. It doesn't matter the choices you make. If you bring mindfulness more and more to the moments of your life, your life will be radically transformed. Or we could say, if you bring more and more moments of delusion, distraction, denial to your life, you will, I guarantee it, life won't work very well. You know, Because denial, distraction, struggle, it distorts the mind. The mind doesn't see clearly. How can we make good choices, skillful choices, when the mind is disturbed? We don't. We make, we make decisions, choices, out of habit. Some of our habits are good, but a lot of our instincts are not so good. They're pretty primitive, pretty much based on sort of animal mentality, you know, like, um, you know, when in doubt, beat it, <laughs> you know, or when in doubt, turn, the, turn your head the other way, like, pay no attention. If you don't understand what's going on, you know, look somewhere else. I mean, that's, we have these sort of primitive approaches to life. It's amazing, you know, if it's shaped like this, Try to get it. You know, that's like the level of our conditioning. We have to appreciate how primitive our conditioning is. And the only way to go beyond our sort of primitive conditioning is to pay attention, is to really show up, and to see that it's not working. That's how a human being transforms their life. But, you know, we have to appreciate it's not easy, but it's okay, because as soon as we get on this path of using mindfulness, it doesn't matter if we can really let go of what we do because we'll learn one way or another. And before long, it just becomes your habit to pay attention. And you, you wish you weren't. You're kind of like, do I really want to see this? You know, see how this mind is relating now. We'd almost rather not see it, but it's too late. Because it's like a virus, a computer virus. It just becomes the nature of the mind to be interested in what's going on more and more. It's like... The mind at some deep level understands this is really the way. This is the way to happiness. And then we start bumping into difficult experience. So that, you know, this is your warning. <laughs> it may be already too late. But, you know, once you get on the path of mindfulness, you can, you know, you can keep yourself away from it for periods of time. But it tends to keep drawing you in, you know, finding, taking the next step to sort of developing your confidence your, you know, kind of religious devotion, not to some god or some statue, but to awareness itself, to waking up itself. This, in Buddhism, this is our object of devotion. When we bow down, like in a lot of Buddhist traditions, including this tradition, there's a lot of bowing, you know, in Asia. To, but they're not bowing. I mean, some people might be bowing to the historic Buddha. But anybody who's really cultivating the practice they're bowing down. When we put our hands together, what we're really doing is we're appreciating this capacity to be clear, to sort of have this relationship to life where 
the mind is relaxed and clear. It's like such a godsend to, to have that as a possibility. Because life, as most of us understand, is challenging. Relationships are challenging. Earning a living is challenging. Dealing with getting older and dying is a challenging. You know, organizing ourselves in families and in communities and nations is challenging. What is it about human life that isn't challenging? So to sort of live this life based on sort of primitive animal instincts is like a setup for a really messy world, a lot like the world we have, you know, where there's a lot of suffering. I mean, Minneapolis, it doesn't get better than Minneapolis. I mean, I hope we all realize in terms of orderliness and kindness, it doesn't really get better than the kind of community we're living in. And even this is quite difficult. So this practice, you know, the Buddha, he, he didn't paint sort of this sort of idealistic notion. He really used the sort of, hey, take a close look. We really need to cultivate mindfulness. It's the one thing that makes life into something beautiful. Life doesn't necessarily get transformed, but our way of relating gets transformed because now we're relating with kindness and with wisdom and patience and clarity and understanding as opposed to you know, expectations and agendas and fear and craving and neediness, which is, you know, by definition, that's our conditioning. Sorry, I got up on my little preacher stool there for a moment, but just it, it's good. It gives you a little taste of, um, you know, kind of how in the Buddhist tradition, the context context of this practice, like why someone might want to uh, take up this practice. And I just want to I'll add a little piece that came with the notes last week. So if you didn't get notes for week two and three, they're up here in the corner. And then the notes from week one are right here, these two sheets. And uh, part of the week two, three notes was this particular model in Buddhism. I mentioned the Four Noble Truths, I think, a couple weeks ago. But the other basic teaching that we hear over and over again is what's called the Eightfold Path. It's basically the Buddha's laying out what to do with mindfulness. And I'll divide it, instead of these eight things, which would take too long to talk about, I'll divide the Eightfold Path into three parts, which the Buddha does. And it's just three places to practice. So the first part is called sila. That's the Pali word. And it means um, like integrity or living with non-harming or ethical conduct. So it's really the area of morality. Now, in Buddhism, morality doesn't come you know, from out there, like God sets what's right and wrong. Morality is, is actually, it comes from within, that the more we uh, create this balance of alertness and relaxation, the mind will naturally notice uh, what is destructive and what is loving. It's like when the mind uh, acts out of a, a sense of separation. See, that, that sense of dualism or separation already is a very subtle kind of violence. The mind sort of holding itself apart from the whole. Now, we would nor normally notice that. I mean, 
all life long, we're living with a very strong sense of separation. There's me and there's you guys. You know, there's me in the world. And it doesn't feel like an act of violence to us. But when the mind gets very quiet and very peaceful, and then a strong sense of self, self-centeredness arises, it really stands out. It's like, it's like a, a huge insult to that peacefulness of mind. Because that peacefulness is like a wholeness, a non-fragmented, a non-scattered state of mind. And then when we have a strong sense of self-centered fear or self-centered craving, it's like really stands out. Oh, this isn't good. And the same thing, like if we're really caught up in a lot of like wanting revenge, jealousy, resentment, craving, you know, competition, and then it falls out of the mind, it's like, ah, oh. you know, like we didn't notice how oppressive that mind state was until all of a sudden it's gone. And then it's like, oh, what a relief not to be caught up in craving, not to be caught up in resentment. Like, you know, I see a mess on the floor, and I just assume, oh, my God, my wife, once again, has left a mess on the floor, you know? And I'll, uh, like that, you know? And I can <laughs> be in a mess. And then all of a sudden I realize, oh, it was my wife, you know? It was the cat, or, you know, something else, you know, fell over. And so it, it doesn't belong to her. So all of a sudden, all of that anger, that resentment, that, you know, all those years of putting up, all of a sudden it just vanishes. And then we get that experience from going from a negative mind state to a neutral or positive mind state. And then we really get, because a moment ago when I was angry, I wouldn't have, it wouldn't have occurred to me this was negative. Of course I feel this way. Of course I feel put upon, right? It just feels so natural and justified to be angry, to be upset, and appropriate to, to be plotting how we're going to bring it up. But then all of a sudden it's gone, and then, boom, we really get a few seconds where we realize how inappropriate, how insane that mind state was. So we really want to see this. And this is part of practice, is bringing mindfulness to our way of relating to people, to everything in life. So sila, this ethical area of practice, is mindfulness of relating to others, to organizations, to thoughts, all the things we relate to. That's one place we practice. Another place we practice, and this is much more about meditation practice, is we're bringing mindfulness to like the inner environment. So sila is mindfulness to the external environments. You know, all our different ways of relating to other people. Samadhi practice, this is the second part of the Eightfold Path, is mindfulness of the mind itself, environment of the mind. And so we're noticing how even if our external life is pretty together, you know, and we're living harmoniously with all of the different people we relate to, you know, our mind could still be completely crazy and wrapped up. But we know enough to not act it out in the world. But internally, there's a lot of craving, there's a lot of fear, there's a lot of anger and resentment. So then learning how to manage, to relate to this, to allow it all to calm down, this all happens by paying attention. Like, what are we paying attention to? Well, what stirs it up and what allows it to calm down? Basically, the cause and effects of agitation and peacefulness. 
Just like that's what we learn out in the external world. Like what leads to harmony in my relationships? What leads to agitation and resentment and discordance in my relationships? It's not, this is all kind of natural. We just have to pay attention to cause and effect. Same with the mind. And then the third place we bring mindfulness. So external, that's the area of sila. Internal, the mind, that's the area of samadhi. So these are three words you can learn. Sila, samadhi, panya means wisdom. This is a specific part of the mind that we practice being mindful of. Mindfulness of the view, like mindfulness of our attitude. What attitude, what view are we living under the influence of right now? And in particular, in Buddhism, we're mindful of the self-view, like self-centeredness. It's presence, it's absence. It's not like one or the other. There's like this spectrum. At one end, it's a very intense, intensely narrow sense of self, right? And thing, everything is very tight, a lot of fear and a lot of craving, you know? And then along that spectrum, you get to a place where well, there's still a sense of self, but it's kind of nimble. It kind of, you know, like if this sense of self really starts to hurt, we can take another sense of self, you know. Oh, you know, oh, I hate that person. You go, oh, but maybe that person is doing the best they can. You know, so we become the wise self, you know. And we talk to the ignorant self or the confused self or the angry self. So it's still a very much a sense of self, but it's nimble. It's more fluid to... As the practice develops and insight develops, where we understand that any conception of self, any sort of self-stance is empty of a center. doesn't mean we can't pretend to be a somebody. doesn't mean we don't know how to interact when somebody thinks, oh, there's Mark up there. But there's a deepening understanding and that gets integrated into the, the nature, the structure of our habits, of our conditioning that understands that any sense of self is just a temporary construction of the mind. It doesn't exist as a thing itself. There is no self except constructed notions of self. Now, we can understand that hopefully intellectually, but the actual experience is profoundly transforming. Little glimpses of this allows us to move from fewer moments over here and a really contracted sense of self, to more and more moments here, and every once in a while moments here. And then eventually, you know, theoretically, we have a Buddha, you know, somebody who's fully enlightened, who's only over here as a human being. They're not confused about any self-action, any self-thought. doesn't mean they can't say, hey, I'm here, and use personal pronouns, but they're not confused by personal pronouns, you know, or names, or, you know, sort of interacting as a person in the world. But whether we even understand what that would be like, we all know what it means to be stuck over here. And we all know how much healthy it is to be here. And if we can go from here to here, why can't we slowly, gradually get to here? And that's the whole practice. And that's the third part of the path. Sila, mindfulness of our relationships. Samadhi, mindfulness of the mind creating a beautiful mind, and panya, mindfulness of our view. So we're transforming our view with mindfulness from a primitive, self-centered, narrow point of view 
to a more open, fluid point of view. And that's basically outlined in last week's notes. And we'll kind of pick it up again next week. But we need to end here.